The title of today's message is Men and Women in Worship. And if you've read ahead, you can understand um, why I prayed, uh, Lord, help us with this tricky passage. Because the, these, um, these verses that we're going to read here in just a moment have been the source of a lot of debate and a lot of argumentation and a lot of um, uh, even, even division. And so I want us to read together Philip, or first, first Timothy, chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, and then we'll study them together. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman who was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. You know what? I think we're just going to close in prayer. <laughs> and we'll be dismissed. Early lunch, everyone? <laughs> you can understand why this is a tricky passage. And I approach this with fear and trembling. The first service, I... Probably should have brought some extra deodorant today. <laughs> we'll see what we can do here. Um, we live in a culture that is very confused about gender. We live in a time when the roles and the God-designed distinctions between men and women have been blurred. Make no mistake, the current debates regarding sexual morality, gay marriage, and transgender issues did not simply arise out of thin air. They came from what began as subtle alterations and definitions and distinctions, and they developed into an all-out assault upon the dignity and uniqueness of God's good creation. Beyond the obvious biological differences, I, I think they're obvious, God has created men and women to be uniquely different and to play differing roles in his world. John Piper has said, confusion over the meaning of manhood and womanhood today is epidemic. The consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. You see, these issues that we're going to discuss this morning have far-reaching effects. But before we get into the text itself, we need to remind ourselves of where we're at in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul has just got done saying that he wants everyone to be together in unity when they gather together corporately to pray for all people, to, to be passionate about the salvation of all people. And now he's going to say, as you come together, 
there are some, some parameters that exist, some roles that are in play for men and women. He's going to talk to us about who we need to be as men and women who are praying for the glory of God among all peoples. And he starts out with a word to the men. A word to the men. He says, I desire, in verse 8, that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger, without anger or quarreling. The first thing that we see, if you're filling out the notes, and by the way, on the back of the notes, I've got a, a, a list of resources that were helpful to me. As we study this today, you're going to realize we're not going to answer all the questions that you might have about this text or these issues. And there are some great places to go to study this a little bit more in depth. There's a couple of those, um, all of those I would highly recommend uh, in, in diving into this topic a little deeper. First off, though, we see that men are to pray in church. Remember, the context is the corporate gathering. And he says, I desire in every place that men should pray. In this context, they were either not praying at all or they were doing so with a divisive spirit. And he says, listen, men, step up and be men of prayer. The word that he uses for man is, is man. He's up to this point used a word that is, um, it's the word, Greek word anthropos, and it means mankind. But now he's speaking and addressing directly to the men, and he's saying, listen, guys, I want you to lead by praying. So often we men are passive. We step back, and we want to let others, let, let the ladies or whoever, uh, step forward and fulfill that role. And God says, listen, men, you need to be the ones at the forefront of this. And I know for some of us, it's difficult to pray, especially when there's other people around. As we said last week, I believe God's Spirit can help us overcome those struggles. I believe that the power of God can enable cowardly men to become bold men, can enable fearful men to be men who step up and lead spiritually. And one of the ways we do that is by praying when we gather together. Secondly, he says that men are to worship in the church. Men are to worship in the church. The posture of the hands is not as important as the posture of the heart. He says lifting holy hands. The idea there is that, that our hearts are coming before God with open-hearted worship. And oftentimes uplifted hands just reflect a heart that says, here I am, Lord. I'm, I want to serve you. I want to honor you. I'm, I'm all yours. I'm all in. I love what Alistair Begg says. I can't, be, can't take it with 100% accuracy, but he says, I can always tell when I'm looking out in my church when a, when a man has gotten saved. He says, because I've watched him sing like this with his hands in his pocket and his head down. And maybe he's not even singing at all, but other times he's mumbling to himself. And that Sunday when I step up and I see him looking up with his hands up and him belting out the greatness and the glories of God. I know that God has gripped his heart, that God has grabbed a hold of his life, and he has been changed. Men are to worship in the church. Or do it at home, or to do it in the car, on the ride to work, or to do it everywhere. But in this context, Paul's talking about when you gather together, lift up holy hands and honor God. And then thirdly, Men are to get along in the church. And obviously there's something behind this. Otherwise he wouldn't have mentioned it. But he says do it without anger or quarreling. Maybe it had to do with the false teachers we mentioned in chapter 1. They had stirred up some strife and some issues. And he says when you get together, I want you to get along. 
Why don't you get along? There's more that we could say about that. But I want to get to his next section, a word to the women. And we'll spend a little more time here, not only because Paul devoted some more verses talking to the ladies, but because this is where the, the, the sticky and tricky situations arise in interpretation and application. So he says in verses 9 and 10, Likewise also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So ladies, the application is anybody with braided hair this morning needs to stand up and repent. We have a basket up here for all your jewelry. That's not what he's saying. I think we know that. There's something else going on here. You see, he, usually, he says the phrase, likewise also. So there's a connection between what he tells men in verse 8, what he's going to tell women in verse 9. The common link here is that these commands are for men and women to pursue a life of holiness, of God-centered holiness. And so what he's going to do now is address letter A, a woman's beauty. A woman's beauty. You see, Paul is writing to a specific context where it seems like in this congregation they had adopted many of the the ornate and lavish styles that were common in the Roman world and the, the latest fashions had trickled over to Ephesus. It's kind of like uh, California is always a few years ahead of us and, and then eventually fashions and other various liberal crazy ideas eventually make their way over here. Well, the same is true uh, in Ephesus. Eventually some of these, these, these fashion ideas had worked their way into the church and it, it sounds like it had become a competition where ladies were, were dressing in such a way that the attention was upon them. The spotlight, rather, being, rather than being on Jesus, was upon individuals. And Paul's like, that's, that's not okay. When you gather together to worship, it should be about bringing glory to God, not about bringing glory to yourself. And so the, the specifics that he addressed with gold and braids and pearls... It's, it's not about a specific thing, like you can wear any jewelry as long as it's not gold or pearls. What he's saying is that when you come to worship, it, don't, don't be an attention seeker. Don't draw the focus to yourself. It's not about you when you come to worship. It's about giving glory to God. Dress in a way that reflects that you are willing to, number one, flee worldliness. That you're not bought into the the fashions and the values that our world is throwing at you. And I know that this temptation, whether you're a man or a woman, is, is a real battle. It, it may not always be about clothes, but there's always something that the world says, you've got to have this so that you can, you can be successful. You've got to wear this. You've got to dress this way. You've got to look this way. And buying into the world's value system can send us into a, a spiral of insecurity and, and lose the focus of worshiping Jesus because we're so wrapped up in ourselves and what other people think of us. When we gather together, we need to flee worldliness. And secondly, we need to uh, embrace modesty. He says, likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. He's speaking specifically about not dressing in a way that's immodest, uh, uh, putting forth a sexual appeal. He's addressing wearing clothes that are seductive and enticing. 
Ladies, I just want to challenge you in this way. Remember your brothers in Christ as you dress yourselves. Remember that, that uh, how you present yourself could be very, very distracting. If guys in church are looking at you more than they are Jesus, there, there may be a problem. And if there's some way that you can help out by remembering to dress and clothe yourselves in a way that honors God and brings Him glory, by all means do so. I love what Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 4. He said to the women, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, when you make your heart, the beauty of your heart before God, your first and foremost pursuit, I'll tell you what, God will be honored. God will be honored. And you'll grow and draw closer to Him. Rather than pursuing what the world says is beauty, listen to what God says is beauty. I can't tell you how uncomfortable it is talking to women about what to wear. <laughs> That's why we stick to God's word. Flee worldliness. Embrace modesty. Secondly, we see not just a a woman's beauty, but we see also in this passage a woman's ministry. A woman's ministry. God has called all of us to serve and to use our gifts and to, to pursue uh, a, a, a Christ-centered worship through the gifts and talents that he's given to us. But God has laid out some principles on how the worship service should come together and how people should be involved. And so as we look at these verses, there are two important principles I want to lay down and share with you. Uh, number one, we need to submit to scripture, not culture. As we come to this text, we must listen to what God says. Not to what our culture tells us we should believe, but what God's word says. And if it bumps up against culture, if it grates against culture, we need to be willing to disregard what cultural norms say and be obedient to the word of God. Whenever there's a conflict between culture and scripture, we always side with scripture. We go with the word of God. I'm not up here preaching to you from any other manual or, or some other self-help book or a list of, uh, you know, first Jeremiah's opinions. This is the word of God that we're talking about here. And whenever it, it, it runs contrary to the culture, we must be willing to run contrary to the culture. And then secondly... Um, we need to remember that God created men with e equal dignity, but with different and complementary roles. This is so important. God created men and women with equal dignity, but with different and complementary roles. Men and women are different and distinct in their respective roles that God has created them for. Man was created with a role that complements women. And Woman was created with a role that complements man. That's the idea behind marriage. God looked at Adam and said, this is not good that he's alone. I'm going to create a helper suitable for him. This was all by God's good design. It's even seen within the nature of God. The relationship between the Father and the Son and the Trinity provides us with a helpful analogy here. The Father is fully God, completely and totally God, the Son, Jesus, 
fully God, completely and totally God. Neither of them are deficient in their godness. And yet, the Father and the Son have different roles. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, The Son submits to the Father. And John 14, 31 says, The Father directs the Son. The Son doesn't complain, oh, I've got to submit to the Father. And the Father isn't domineering over the Son, manipulating and controlling Him. There's no hint of anything negative in their relationship. They're God. There are different roles among the persons of the Trinity, though each, the Father and the Son, have equal value and are both equally God. All of it is in beautiful harmony. Man and woman are equal before God in their value and in their worth, but there are differing roles that God has assigned them. God's good design is seen in the home as the husband and wife relate to each other with specific complementary roles. In Ephesians 5, verses 22 and following, Paul instructed wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And husbands are commanded to love their wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In a similar way, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 tells us that there are differing roles between men and women, even within the church. And so we get to a couple prohibitions here in verses 11 and 12. He says... Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. These verses uh, prohibit women teaching men and exercising authority over men. These two traits, these two roles, these two responsibilities of teaching and exercising authority are the roles that are given to elders in a church. Those two uh, traits reflect the role of an elder. And scripture teaches us that elders are to rule or to exercise authority. Elders are to teach, to preach. Back in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul instructed the elders of this very church in Ephesus. And he says, you guys were called by the Holy Spirit. He's made you overseers and charged with pasturing or shepherding or feeding the flock, teaching the whole counsel of God. It is no coincidence in the very next chapter here, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is going to go into the qualifications of an elder. And one of those qualifications is that the elder be a husband of one wife, that he be a male. It's, uh, when we think about Paul's prohibition against women teaching, we must not take it to mean that, that women are allowed to teach. Is that what he's saying here? He's talking about in the, the context of public worship. You don't have to look far to see that there are many instances of women teaching others in the scripture. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3, he says the older women are to teach the younger women. It says at the end of that verse, they're to teach what is good and train the younger women to love their husbands and children. It was so precious yesterday to hear uh, testimonies of how delight had taught the word of God to other younger moms and imparted a valuable wisdom and scriptures into their lives as she had a chance to meet with them in the mom's group and occasionally in her own home. Another example that we see is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, uh, that uh, and, and, and 
further along in chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul tells Timothy, remember what you learned about the Holy Scriptures. Well, chapter 1 told us that it was his grandmother and his mom that helped raise him in the faith. His, his mom and his grandma had such a valuable role in teaching him the Word of God. We see also in Acts 18, 26, Priscilla, as she and her husband Aquila um, pulled Apollos aside, who was still, still learning the ropes and still learning doctrine, and they instructed him together as husband and wife um, and, and helped him understand the scriptures more, thorough, more thoroughly. It is not likely, then, that Paul is saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that every kind of teaching is forbidden to women. There are many examples both in scripture and in history of uh, teaching younger women, of teaching children, and in some way teaming up with their husbands to give private instruction. There are all kinds of opportunities available for a woman to teach. But here in this context, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. And, and when we couple it together with that phrase, to exercise authority over men, he's saying that, that with regards to the authoritative public transmission about Christ, and, and the scriptures is a, that is a function of the elders and overseers who should be male. Um, this is a difficult passage. Uh, sim uh, simply put, though, um, I believe that what this text is teaching is that women are not supposed to be put in positions of ultimate leadership over the church to serve as elders and pastors and teachers. For many, the word authority and even this whole idea that Paul would actually say such a thing is, is uh, unsettling, difficult to hear. Because, let's be honest, it flows against the culture that we live in today. What should it look like, then, when godly leadership is in place? When, when things are being done in a biblical and a God-honoring way? Men should not be leading in a domineering or authoritative way, pushing women aside. In fact, Jesus told us in Luke 22, 26, that the greatest among you should become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that God gave him authority in the church, not for tearing down or destroying, but for building up. And Peter told the elders of the churches in 1 Peter 5, 3, not to domineer over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. In other words, elder authority is servant authority. Elder leadership is servant leadership. That's why teaching is at the heart of this calling. Elder authority leads by persuasion, by teaching, not by coercion or political maneuvering, or domination. Elder authority is always subordinate to the biblical text. It can always be called, account, uh, called to account by Scripture. And that's why... Paul commands elders to lead in a way that is humble. No, no man, no elder could ever take this text and use it to beat a woman over the head with. This is, this is about God ordaining proper roles in his church, not about trying to, to push anyone aside or squelch anyone. But it's, it's God saying, listen, this is how I've gifted you. This is how I've designed you to function within my, my church. If, if you just listen to me, I know what's best. We next see then two reasons for this. And we'll try to cover these briefly. 
Uh, and as I said at the outset, there's no way that I can say everything that needs to be said. I won't answer all of your, your questions about, about this text in just a uh, in just one message, uh, but I'd be happy to, to talk to you as long as you promise to leave all rotten fruit out of the door. Uh, I'd be happy to, to answer any questions and have any conversations about this if you'd like. Uh, he gives two reasons, though, for his command. He doesn't appeal to culture. He doesn't say, well, this is how I want it to be just in Ephesus. Uh, we're going through some things here, and so uh, this, is, this is how it should be here where, we're are, where we are, but you can do it how you want to do it. He gives two reasons that transcend culture in verse, uh, verses 13 and 14. He says in verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So he gives creation order as one of the reasons for uh, this, this um, of God's way of ordering things in the church. And then secondly, he says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And that's a confusing verse, but I, I read someone here who said uh, the best way to, to look at this is, is that in approaching Eve, the servant subverted the pattern of male leadership and interacted only with the woman. Adam was present throughout this whole thing and was passive. He didn't intervene. This Genesis temptation, therefore, stands as a prototype of what happens when male leadership is abrogated. God calls men to step to the forefront, and that includes not only in the home, but in the church. I want to just mention briefly a couple of things this passage is not saying. We've already said it's not saying that women aren't allowed to teach. There are many contexts where women are able to teach, and many functions and opportunities for women to proclaim the word of God. Um, we see uh, ladies leading Bible conferences all over the world. We see um, uh, ladies teaching in seminary and in so many other different contexts where uh, I believe that that is biblical and that falls into the, the, the ability that the God-ordained roles for them to be able to use those gifts of teaching. Just we're talking about the, the context of the public worship gathering based here on 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's also not teaching that men are somehow better than women. Let's not misconstrue that or twist it in some way to, to say that. God is not saying that. I am not saying that. The word of God is teaching that we are equal in God's sight, yet we have different roles. I believe this is just the most simple and straightforward reading of this text. In fact, up until the last 60 years, this was just the generally accepted position of the, of the church. But in all reality, with the rise of feminism uh, and... and uh, equal rights, and which, which in so many ways have done so many good things, it has unfortunately negatively in, impacted how we look at these scriptures about roles in the church, and it has influenced our view. Alistair Begg says that there's a direct correlation between the phenomenal pressure of the culture of our day and the expressions of feminism, of the hearts and minds and knees of weak-willed characters who are prepared to capitulate to the spirit of the age. Let us not be people who've lost confidence in the scriptures and kowtow the influence of the culture. And then we've given, uh, we've given um, uh, two, um, we gave a couple of uh, disclaimers, a couple of prohibitions, we gave a couple of reasons for those commands, and now we're going to look at one confusing verse. Um, just briefly, in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So ladies, all you've got to do to be saved is have a baby. 
He said, you may have thought it had to do with faith in Jesus Christ and all that stuff we talked about earlier. He's going to have a baby, and that's all you gotta, that's all you got to do to get into heaven. I don't think he's saying that. In fact, I'm 100% sure he's not saying that. We know from a host of passages in Scripture that our salvation comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I also don't think he's saying that women will be saved physically. That verse saved can refer to physical salvation sometimes, not just spiritual salvation. But I don't think he's saying women will be physically saved during childbirth because we know that um, the opposite has happened at times when uh, ladies have lost their lives during the process of giving birth. So that kind of leaves us with two possible interpretations. It's a very one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. Um, the first possible interpretation that this is an expression of the incarnation. Uh, when she says she will be saved through childbearing, some commentators have thought that it refers back to God's original promises, because he was just talking about Adam and Eve. God's original promise in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, where he told Eve, he said, your, your seed will crush the serpent's head. We know that that was a prophecy about Jesus Christ, that he was going to come and destroy the enemy, Satan. We know that. Some, some commentators have thought that, that, that this, this salvation through childbearing is a reference to that. It could be. I think it's a little too, too veiled. I think Paul would state it much, a bit more clearly if that's what he was trying to get to. Um, I think rather he's probably, um, probably saying not that we're going to be saved from sin, uh, but rather that childbearing is a part of a larger whole, which is the woman's wider role to care for the home. Childbearing is a representative of privileges that make women unique and distinct from men. There's not a, not a single man, biologically, who can carry a child. A, a woman's ability to give birth sets her off as unique in that way. This is certainly not saying that all women must get married to have, and have children. Paul makes it clear that 1 Corinthians 7, that God has called many Christians to singleness. Rather, I think he might be saying here that women will be saved from embracing men's role by embracing their own unique role. The things that God has designed them to do. You will be saved by childbearing, by being who you are. Not trying to usurp the authority of man. Not trying to fulfill a role that God has not designed you for. You can see this is a sticky passage. It's difficult. It raises, maybe studying this morning has raised more questions than it's answered. But I just want to close with two applications. Two things that I think uh, we can all agree on. First off, men, we need to lead. Let's not be passive. Let's not sit back on our haunches and, and, and let other people, whether it be ladies or uh, just relying on, on work to get done. God has called men to lead in their homes. God has called men to lead in the church. So we need to get off of our butts sometimes and step up and do what God has called us to do. Let's not be passive. It was passivity, the original sin. Adam stood by and watched as the serpent came in and deceived his wife. Let us not be guilty of the same thing, of passively standing by. And then secondly, ladies, embrace your God-ordained calling. Embrace your God-ordained calling. I realize that God has called many, many of you to work outside the home and you feel burdened for one way or another to do that. And if that's, that's, your, that's what's on your heart and that's what you feel called to do, that's, that's fantastic. 
But for those of you who choose to be stay-at-home moms, don't let anyone, whether out in the world or in the church, tell you somehow you've chosen a lesser calling. Well, don't you work? Well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. You mean you don't have a job? Well, yeah, I'm a stay-at-home mom. It's really, really hard. Don't ever let anyone somehow, like, aw, that's so sweet. Like, like coddle you or, or make you feel like you've chosen a lesser life. God has, God has called us to be different people. And when you read the scriptures, it's not just cultural. God has called the man to lead and to provide. And God has called the wife to submit and to care for her home. I realize that there are extenuating circumstances where sometimes those things need to be adjusted somewhat. But by and large, that's what God's called us to be. Don't be afraid to be who God has called you to be. Men, women, fulfill the role that God has laid upon your heart, that God's word makes so clear is who you are. There is a host of cultural torrent that flies in the face of this, of, of, of us being obedient to the word of God. But may we come to the scriptures and hear his, what he has to say about the good distinctions, the good roles that he's given to men and women that are rooted in his very creation and seek to fulfill them by his grace for his honor and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these verses are, are culturally very tricky verses. And in our context, and in our world, they can be verses that are not necessarily popular to believe at face value. We, we try to find a way around them and, and twist, well, I can't mean exactly what he said, or what well, must have been different there in Ephesus than what we're facing now. And I, God, as we, as we look at your word, help us to just submit to the scriptures and, and be willing to hear what you have to say. And Lord, what I think you're saying through these verses is you're, you're calling men you're calling us as men to, to step forward and lead, be the spiritual leaders. That when we gather together, that we lead to, to pray, to lift up holy hands and worship, to, to take the forefront in dealing with uh, problem solving and, and, uh, and conflict resolution. Lord, may we be the kind of leaders that you call us to be. And Father, Father, as we look at the commands for women in regards to how, how, uh, how they should be how we should clothed and, and how we should function and serve in those roles that you've ordained. May we listen and be obedient to you, recognizing that even if we don't understand all the reasons why, your word is good. And the way that you've designed things is very, very good. Lord, let us hear your word. Let us obey your word and be the kind of church that you have called us to be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.